I want to ask you to open up to Luke 1 tonight. We are still studying um, in the theme of sanctuary, building a sanctuary, um, a place for God to dwell, a place for God to move and to delete, to lead God and direct, a place for worship, for community, and for ministry. Um, so we're going to be looking at the next item that uh, uh, is a part of the instructions for building the sanctuary. I'm going to show you that item and that those verses from Exodus up here on the screen. So I want you to go ahead and open to Luke 1, um, because we'll be reading from there in a little bit. Um, but again, tonight is going to be the first of three Christmas editions of our sanctuary study. I don't think this is too forced. Um, I've been preparing this for a while. Uh, sanctuary is all about a place for God to dwell. Christmas is all about Emmanuel, God with us. So it lines up pretty well. Um, and it just so happens that we are going to look at a text where they are in the sanctuary, in the house of God, waiting for God to move, praying for God to move, and it intersects with this item, these, these next few items that are we would have studied back in Exodus. So uh, what we're going to do, um, we're going to talk about this next item of interest um, in the instruction for building the sanctuary. Um, it happens to be pretty important in the Christmas story. Maybe you've never thought about it before in this way, but I think it'll all make sense when we start um, unpacking it. It'll benefit us to bridge these two stories and bridge these two texts. Um, and I think we'll walk away with a greater appreciation for this aspect of the sanctuary, um, this aspect of worship and community and ministry. So the next item, if you were to read Exodus 25, the last part of that chapter, the next item uh, in the book of Exodus is the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand, which in Hebrew and often referred to in an English form of that word, is the menorah. So we all know about the menorah. It's particularly um, of, of interest this time of year um, with another holiday that we'll talk about. Uh, but the golden lampstand is the next item. We've talked about the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about the bread of presence. And the next item that we would look at in Exodus is the golden lampstand or this menorah. Now, the menorah uh, that you've probably seen one before, but this is a picture of what it would be, um, what it would look like based on the description that is given in Exodus. Um, seven branches, three on either side of the middle, one in the very center, of course, um, just outside the holiest place. So if you're familiar with the tabernacle's design that we'll talk about more in a few weeks, the, the tabernacle's design, there is a courtyard, there's a holy place, and then there's the holiest place or the holy of holies. Um, the holiest place is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, it's where the high priest would go once a year and would offer the sacrifice of the, of the lamb uh, for the Day of Atonement. The holiest place is only um, accessed once a year where God's presence would come and dwell on the ark and the people would experience him vicariously through the priest and through the activity of that, event, of that service. Um, but the holy place was just outside of the, of the veil, just outside of the holiest place, was a holy place uh, that was within its own veil um, as well. Um, and it's in this holy place that the other priests... So any priest that wasn't the high priest could also enter into this place um, where they would uh, uh, burn incense to the Lord. Um, and in this holy place, there was uh, the bread of presence, and there was this menorah, this golden lampstand. Um, and the bread and the menorah were really symbolic ornaments. They didn't really do anything other than that they reminded the people, and they reminded the priests 
um, and they stood for God's abiding presence and God's guidance. Of course, the bread, the showbread, it literally refers to the presence of God in the title, the bread of presence. As the bread fell from heaven, the bread on this table, it was baked every Sabbath, it was laid on the table, every week it was replaced, it was a sign of God's abiding presence. He would never leave them, he would always provide for them. They could guarantee that by the bread on the table. Also, there was the menorah that was always to be lit, always to be burning, which symbolized that just as the fire guided them in the desert by night, the fire of God in the burning, burning in the tabernacle would always provide guidance to them. No matter how dark it got, God's light would shine and show them the way. Now, the bread, the bread was baked every Sabbath, but the lights required a bit more attention. This wasn't a weekly attention. This was a daily, twice a day, the lights had to be attended to to make sure the oil did not dry up and the light did not stop burning. So every morning, every evening, a priest would go in and check on the menorah to make sure the lights did not go out because it was imperative the lights must always burn to symbolize the guiding presence of God that they always could depend on. Uh, while the priest was in there, he would also offer incense on an altar that was in that same place, which was a way of welcoming and asking for God's presence and guidance to come and dwell with the people. So this was not a sacrifice. It was merely a burning of incense. And anytime you see incense in the Bible, it's always a symbol for prayer. So this was more or less every morning the priest would go in, he would check the menorah, make sure it still had enough oil in it to burn until the end of the day. He would check the lamp, and then he would go to this altar, a smaller version of the bigger altar that was inside the holiest place, he would go to this altar, he would offer incense, burn incense, and as that aroma rose up through the three-layer, three-story temple, as the aroma rose up through what would be a chimney-like uh, infrastructure, the prayers of the saints outside in the outer court that were praying out throughout the nation of Israel, as the aroma rose, as the incense was burned, it symbolized the prayers of the people as they were seeking out God's guidance. So this was a way of symbolizing every morning they prayed, every evening they prayed. Of course, they prayed anytime they wanted to, but there was corporate, there was mandated prayer every morning, every evening. It was like clockwork. When the priest goes in the holy place to burn incense, you prayed. If you were in the temple, if you were at home, you knew what time he was praying, and you prayed with him, and you prayed while he was in there, because it was to send God a message. We are expecting you to move. We are asking for you to move. We are looking for you to move. We are relying on you because you're our presence and you're our light. The bread and the lamp, they remind us you're with us and you have something for us. So wherever we are, we're praying, asking that it wouldn't just remain in the holy place. Do you hear what this is about? This is us not always in the sanctuary. We're not always in the building where we feel like God is right here because most of the time we're not here. We're out there, right? And it gets rough. It gets dark. It gets difficult. But as you pray as the priest is inside the holy place offering incense, we, wherever we are, pray with him alongside him that God would respond that we would not be separated from God. That prayer is that way of maintaining fellowship, maintaining our, our closeness to God. 
And if you ever want to see how just the, just the results of not praying, and we've all done this before, it's very easy to feel that separation and to drift apart. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But here's the scriptural information. Here's what the Bible says back in Exodus about this lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So hammered out of one solid piece of gold. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides. So again, one in the center, three on both sides. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongue and their tray shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent. Important. A talent is a 75-pound block of gold. Now, that's a pretty big chunk of gold, right? 75-pound block of gold. It shall be made out of one single talent of gold. So, we can gather that this thing probably was made out of what would equate to, in our time, $2.1 million worth of gold. That's not cheap, right? And it never left that room. It was just an ornament, right? But they invested what they needed to for the house of the Lord. $2.1 million worth of gold. And the ancient historian Josephus tells us that it would have stood about five feet tall, um, and each branch would have been about two feet in, um, in, in, in length on each side. So this thing sat on the floor, um, a pretty big fixture in the holy place. It wasn't just a lamp that sat on the table like we often see. It was a pretty big um, a standing lamp. Um, so about the same size as the table with the bread and the altar of incense. And if you read throughout Exodus, the menorah always gets brought back up. Exodus 27, we read, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that the lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So the Jews took this very seriously. This lamp always had to burn. A statute forever throughout every generation. And when the menorah is brought up, we also are told that the altar next to it was crucial for understanding the purpose of this menorah. Exodus 30, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it a regular incense offering before the Lord. So as I already said, every morning, every evening when you burn the incense, you check the lamps because it was a connective tissue between the incense of prayer and the light that was always to be burning. So together, this incense offered in the light that was kept burning symbolized the undying hope of the people and God. And it sent two messages, one from God and one from the people. God wouldn't forsake them, and they wouldn't forget him. So the, 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 the message from God was, I will not forsake you. The light is going to always burn. I am not going to forget you. And the message to, the, to God was from the people, we are going to burn incense. We are going to pray to you to show you we are not going to forget you because we take, if we were to, to take a day off, we would easily and quickly forget. So, of course, the light stood for God's light. And as with the incense, the oil they provided was a symbol of their own lives as vessels for God. As they poured, poured oil into these different the, 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 the candles, it was as if they were pouring their own lives for God 
to burn and God to surround them. They would be a people of constant, fervent, and focused prayer. Their lives were like incense and oil for God to spark. So here's the thing. God, has never, God is plenty capable of starting a fire. Anywhere you read through the Scripture, God is always quick to bring fire. Fire is a symbol of God's power and God's presence. But the oil is a symbol that, hey, this is a place that we are asking and expecting you to burn. So the oil was a way of communicating their availability, their willingness for God to use them, to start this spark in them. And while it would be easy to keep the lights burning and the incense offered during the good times, it would be, during, it would be tough in the difficult seasons of life. When you're discouraged, when we're discouraged, when we're down, when we're struggling, we don't feel like praying. We don't feel like offering anything to God, right? And often when things are rough, we feel like taking things from God or, or holding things back from God. That's why people don't come to church when they feel bad, right? They don't worship whenever they're going through a season of difficulty because our, our, our reaction to hard times is to isolate ourselves and to cut ourselves off from God. See, when, you're, when we're rising up, we feel like giving God the glory. And sometimes we, we do it out of insurance because we hope that God doesn't let us dip back down, right? You'll see people that say, you know, I'm glad God is blessing me. I hope that He keeps blessing me, right? And while as we notice things sinking or initially drop, we might anxiously pray, the tougher and the longer the trial, the less frequent and the more hesitant we are in seeking Him. Isn't it true? That while things might initially, when things get tough, we might initially start praying and, and be very anxious in our prayers, the longer the trial, the tougher the trial, we actually start praying less. That we start accepting that things are going to always be bad, we accept that things are going to always continue to get worse and worse and worse, and we accept that somehow, someway, that thing is going to get in, get in between us and God. Sometimes we go so long without praying and without offering any sort of praise or incense to God, it just seems far into even considerate. This plays right into the theme of Advent through the church, Advent and for us as a church, because Advent acknowledges the gaps and encourages us to keep praying. Perhaps you've heard of the menorah in relation to a story that often gets told this time of year. Um, and it's so crucial to a Jewish holiday and a festival that is celebrated every December, uh, which is called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights, and this year it's celebrated in, in, in tangent with Christmas. It's celebrated the week that we are celebrating Christmas. Hanukkah commemorates a time between the Testaments, so around 135, 150 uh, B.C. Um, Hanukkah commemorates a time between the Testaments when the temple had been desecrated by the Greeks who had recently conquered and taken over the land. Um, they were trying to kind of uh, uh, push the Jews back, and they were trying to kind of intimidate the Jews from being a people that worshiped their God. They were trying to force um, worshiping Zeus on the people. There were all sorts of sacrilegious things done in the temple. Um, the Jews banded together and drove out the Seleucids, which was this group of Greeks. They drove out the Seleucids who attempted to pressure the Jews into worshiping Zeus. And long story short, after the war, they focused on rededicating the temple and one of the main aspects of the rededication was relighting the menorah because the oil had been had dried up and the light had quit burning. So this temple had been awful things had been done in it. Pigs were offered on the sacrifice. The veil was torn down. Just terrible, terrible things. So they spend weeks and weeks and weeks trying to rededicate the temple. And it comes to this period, traditionally in December uh, is believed when they did this. It comes to this period 
where they are rededicating the temple and they are trying to relight the menorah because that is so important. So however, because the city is so war-torn and the supplies are so drained, there only was one cruise of oil which had not been defiled and could be used on the menorah. And it contained enough oil to last only one night. So enough oil was poured in each of the seven uh, candles. And miraculously, the story goes, that the one cruise of oil lasted eight nights until more oil was able to be found. And the message therein is more than just God would always provide, but it also that God doesn't require or want anything from us other than our hearts. That they gave God what they had. And they were so anxious that God would come and dwell in the temple once more. They were so anxious for God's presence to come as it once did. They were so anxious to pray to God and communicate to God. They were so anxious to fellowship with God. They gave God all that they had, and God honored that offering. And that small amount of oil was enough to keep the light burning. See, we often think that we've got to have a lot before God can do a lot. Right? And the devil will tell you that because you don't have a lot that God can't do a lot with you. Because you aren't talented, because you aren't wise, because you don't have this, this, this going for you, then you can't do it. You, God can't use you or God can't do a lot through you. That is a lie. See, these Jews only had one cruise of oil and they were so desperate for God's presence that that one cruise of oil was enough to get the light burning and keep it burning. Not just for a week, but for the time going forward. See, ultimately, God... Anything God asks of us is just a means of getting our whole heart. See, if it takes God taking everything from you, then that's what God needs. But God might not need everything. He might just need one thing, right? And that one thing might mean that might be everything to you. I don't know what you have. I don't know what God's asking from you. But when God asks something from you, it's because He knows He needs that one thing to get your whole heart. God needs our whole heart. Our hearts are the only vessel He wants to give us exactly what we need. So during the season of drought and worry, draining resources and depleting hopes, we must continue to come before the Lord, even when we don't feel like it. Especially when we don't feel like it. Because God has not forsaken us. He hasn't abandoned us. His light is still burning, His presence is still surrounding, and His plans are still working. So we ought to be like the psalmist said. As the priests went into the temple morning and evening to burn incense, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So here's a guy who wasn't a priest. He couldn't get in the holy place. But he figured it out. That priest isn't any better than me. That priest is a stand-in for me, right? That priest who gets to go into a place that I'll never see isn't more holy than me. He isn't more spiritual than me. He's just a picture and a symbol of who I can be. See, I can't go to the temple and I can't offer a great sacrifice, but God, I can pray. And I can lift up my hands. And I know this might not be as spiritual as singing on stage in some major megachurch. It may not be as spiritual as giving thousands of dollars to some charitable cause. But God, what I can do is I can pray and I can lift up my hands. I can surrender to you because that is the start of you getting my heart. And when I get more, I'll do more. But right now, I know what i got to do. See, I don't know where you're at and what you're going through. Listen, if you can do more, you should do more, and you are required to do more. But I know what God requires of everybody every morning. Pray. 
And when you feel like you're about to back up against the wall and you have no options, lift up your hands and admit to the devil that is looking at you trying to intimidate you, I've already surrendered. You can't defeat me because you don't control me because I've already surrendered to the God in heaven. So as the psalmist said, I can't go to the temple and I can't sacrifice at the altar, but I can pray and I can surrender and that's enough. See, the Jewish people, it got tough during those intertestament days. During many, many dark seasons under many bad kings, even before the, the Old Testament ended, the temple began to be so defiled, people quit going the sacrifices and the services weren't as glorious as they once were. And then the intertestament period came. They were exiled to Babylon. They came back and tried to rebuild. And even though Nehemiah and Ezra were great men, they just couldn't get it back to like it used to be. And the people got discouraged and they gave up and they quit going and they quit even thinking about God. And as the 400 years went by, as sands shifted around them, empire after empire rose up and came against them, there were a few people that continued to come before the Lord. And even though fewer and fewer believed, there was a remnant that held on to hope. And it's because of those few that Christmas eventually happened. It's the people that kept the lamps oiled and they continued to offer incense. They're the ones that were tuned in. See, they refused to believe the lie that God's silence equaled His absence. You see, when we pray... When we pray and offer our lives to God, we are sharpening our sensitivity to the Spirit. Now hear this. When you pray, it's not always about getting something answered or getting something from God. Prayer is a way to sharpen your sensitivity to the Spirit. It's a way of tuning in to God. But see, alternatively, when we give up, we trade God's Spirit for our feelings See, this is why so many of us crumble. And listen, human nature pushes us towards this. The breakdown of our mental faculties because of the fall, all are a product of the fall. They want to submerge us in how we feel. But I believe, you can believe, that God's Spirit is greater than our flesh. God's Spirit is more powerful, a tone setter than our feelings. 1 John chapter 3 tells us, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, our feelings, our emotions. God is greater. And in the introduction of the Christmas story, we see God exercise His greatness over the crestfallen and downtrodden people of Israel. As a particular couple holds on to hope, God shows up to inform them that Christmas is on the way. As we close, read with me Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron, and his, her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So we see this couple struggle is just a picture of the nation's struggle. It's a microcosm of what the whole nation was going through. As Elizabeth was barren, the nation was barren of God's blessing and of God's activity. 
They were ruled by a non-Jewish man who was made king by Rome who attempted to win the Jews over and convince them that if they just let him make their temple more beautiful, God would have no choice but return to Israel in a big way. But God had not moved one inch closer, or so they thought. After 400 years of silent nights, many began to fall away. Many began to wonder if God was ever going to move. And from a national scale to a personal scale, people struggled to sense or feel like God was near or with them in any way. Yet the temple was still attended by a few faithful, and including this couple who had kept the lights on and the oil burning. Luke tells us that they, were, that they refused to let it become bigger than their God. Luke tells us they refused to let their difficult, their struggle keep them from connecting with God. It weighed on them, but they refused to let it become bigger than their God. Yes, their burden was great, but their faith in God was greater. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy or it's natural, but these two prove that it's possible. Verse 8 says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this is what we were talking about. Every morning, every evening. This was probably in the evening. Every morning, every evening, one of the priests got chose, was selected to go into the holy place and check on the oil and burn incense as a way of saying, God, we're still here. And in this day and age, it was more, way, more of a way of saying to God, God, we're still here, the light's still burning, the bread's still there, so we assume you're still here, but we haven't heard from you in a long, long time. And a lot of people have given up, God. But we're not giving up. And God, I don't, know about, I don't know if I've told you lately, but my wife and I are struggling. And I know it's easy to be, to, it's, it might be selfish of me to focus on me and my wife, but we've been very faithful and we've been here for a long, long time. A lot of people have quit. A lot of people have went home. A lot of people quit coming, but we haven't. And God, I don't really feel like being in this building right now. I don't feel like being at this altar right now, but I'm going to show up because you know what? You're greater than my heart. And I don't feel like it, but I know you do. So I'm going to offer some incense, God, and I've got some people outside praying, and I'm going to probably walk out of here, and it's going to be like every other day. Nothing's going to happen. But God, I choose to believe that this time it might be different. See, one thing that we see in Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, when people pray, God moves. Now, sometimes God moves a little bit, and sometimes God moves a lot, but He always moves. See, sometimes you can measure God's move. Sometimes it's indistinguishable, but either time, either way, it's effective in some way. Because you can measure as microscopic as you can go, and you can measure as far as you can go. And sometimes you can't tell how far God's moved. I want to show you, there's an allusion to this time of prayer in the book of Revelation. It's a chapter that emphasizes that God's people are crying out for God to redeem and save the earth. And it refers to this time of incense. Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about, about half an hour. And I saw these seven angels who stood before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. So this is the scene. 
Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer or vial. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So here's the scene. On earth, there's a time of prayer and a time of offering incense. And in heaven, while that time on earth is happening, in heaven, there's some silence because God is listening. Hear that? In heaven, while on earth we're offering our prayers and our incense, God in all of heaven is silent because God listens when we pray. And you might not think He listens, but He does. And while you're praying, there's a vial on the altar before God with your name on it, and it's getting filled with your prayers. And every time you pray, that vial gets a little bit more full and a little bit more full. Every time you pray. And in this exchange in heaven, God says to the angel, take that vial, those vials of the saints, off the altar. Next verse. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And with that came thunder and rumblings, lightning and an earthquake. This is God's way of saying, hey, I've got your prayers. The vials are full. My angel is throwing it as in God's way of saying, the answer is coming. And these rumblings and thunders and fire is God's activity. It's God's response. So the message here is keep praying until your vial is full. If the answer hasn't come, it may mean that the vial isn't full. The time is not right. But don't think your prayers are in vain. God keeps record of every one of them. See, Zechariah had prayed for a long time, a very long time. But this time, things were finally about to change. Verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. You know why? Because this kind of thing hadn't happened in a long, long time. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. You hear that? See, he had, he had been so disconnected from God that God's response was frightening to him. The angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He is the first domino to fall in the Christmas story. Because John is going to make the way, pave the way for the Messiah to come. A few months later, that same angel would appear to a young woman and would say even more amazing things that we'll look at next time. But the message, the moral of this story, you see what happens when you keep the lights on? You see what happens when you keep the oil burning? God has a plan. He's always working. Always behind the scenes. Eventually, we're all can and we'll see. He's always working behind the scenes. But the hope of Christmas is eventually, eventually the curtain's going to part. 
Christmas is a season of bright lights, and rightly so. Because in a season that would otherwise be the darkest, Christmas shines the brightest lights from the highest of heavens. Brighter than that menorah. Reminding us. Reminding us that God's abiding presence and guidance are always with us. Always. Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you, maybe we're like Zechariah and Elizabeth tonight. Like the whole nation of Israel. It's been a while since you moved the way we once experienced you. Or maybe the way we have heard you move in others' lives, but honestly, we've, we've never seen it. God, we come to you tonight knowing that our prayers are not in vain. There is a vial in heaven that says risen on it. There's a vial in heaven that says the name of everybody that's in this house tonight. Every prayer that is prayed goes into that vial. You hear our prayers. The Bible says you are silent when we pray because you want to make sure that all of heaven hears what we're saying. Father, whether we deserve that kind of attention or not, Lord, you give it to us. And Lord, just as Zechariah went into the temple that day and he prayed a prayer that I'm sure he thought maybe would not be heard or responded to, you moved in an unexpected way. So Father, we're here tonight knowing that you might not respond immediately. You might not respond exactly how we anticipate or would like you to, but God, we're here tonight to do what we know we should do, which is pray to you and depend on you and keep the lights on. Because your fire is going to come in our direction. And your answer is going to come in our direction. So Father, as Zechariah got word from heaven, Lord, we expect that same word. Lord, we've heard it tonight from the Spirit through this teaching. We believe you've spoken to us. You're greater than how we feel. Your Spirit is almighty. So we welcome him into our hearts. We welcome him into this season. As we keep the lights on, we cannot wait to see what you're going to do next. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.